You're listening to Irish Radio Canada at Home and Abroad, and the Irish, when they came to Canada, got very much involved in the media, and particularly in Montreal, they were very much involved in journalism, and this would have been going back into the early 1800s, so even prior to the famine. But towards the end of the 1800s, Ireland can claim, and Canada tries to claim, and I'm reading here from a CBC story, which it says the Canadian journalist who fought for the idea that women care about more than fashion. Now, that Canadian journalist is Irish, and that is Kit Coleman. And it says Kit Coleman battles sexism to fight for equality on pages of Canada's largest newspapers in the 1890s. And I have two ladies with me in studio who are paying an awful lot of attention to Kit Coleman. Paula Kennedy is in County Galway, and Paula and I have been in contact with each other for a long number of years because Paula was involved in Ireland reaching out, and then we worked a bit together on the Primrose Girls, which were orphans from County Galway who were transported effectively to the Ottawa area, up into Smith's Falls area. And now Paula is studying Kit Coleman. And I'm also talking with Tara Giddens, and Tara is at the University of Limerick. And Tara is also very much involved in the study of Kit Coleman. Paul and Tara, thanks a million for coming along. So I'll start with you, Paul. This particular project, what got you into it? Tell me a bit about it. And given that Kit Coleman is a good Galway woman, you're the one that's flying the flag to start with. (laughs) Thanks, Austin. Well, I guess I was just intrigued. I found an article on Ireland's Own going back in July 2020, and it was about a journalist born in Castlebakney in 1856 in County Galway by the name of Catherine Ferguson. And I have to say, I'd never heard of her before and I was totally intrigued. And I just wanted to know more about her. You know, we hear a lot about um, the various wars that goes on. We, we hear about all the men and all the good that they've done. But sometimes we don't always hear about the women and the jobs that they do. And it's not acknowledged. And I thought I only live only a few miles away from Castle Bakney, and I thought it would be nice just, even for Facebook, you know, to post up a little bit about her uh, in the locality and find out a little bit more. But as I dug in, obviously there was a lot to learn, um, and Tara has written quite extensively and spoke about her, so we're not in the same league now. But I <laughs> am um, basically, I started off trying to find out about information here in Castle Bakney first. So, Basically, her her story starts with her being born in Castlebakney. Um, her parents is Patrick and Mary Burke, and she was born in 1856. And uh, her baptismal cert um, says that her um, sponsors were her grandparents, I think anyway, which is Walter and Mary, and they were both living in Galway City at the time. She has one sister, and her name was Margaret, and she was born in November in 1853. And I gather there's only just the two daughters that was in the family. Um, now, Patrick and Mary Burke were married um, in 1853. And the witnesses to the marriage was James Blake and Mrs. Blake, which I believe is Henrietta Blake. And they had a large estate over there in Vermont in, in uh, Minla in Casa Blakeney. So um, I suppose these um, families they were quite established. So I'd imagine I... Patrick must have had a lot of land and that he was going in that circle, if you can understand what I'm saying there. Uh, anyways, they have the two daughters and it's not long after then um, they left Casa Blakeney and the family moved to Montbellu and they had they bought a mill there. 
the mill in about, I think it was about 1860 period. But um, before I go on to that, I suppose, just a little bit about Catherine and her background. She was born, in, and, and as I say, Castle and she went on to be educated, uh, first of all, at Loretta Abbey in Rathfarman in Dublin. And this was a boarding school, a convent. And from what I can understand from different um, books and articles I've read, that her uncle, um, the great um, uh, Dominican priest, um, Nicholas Burke, was the spiritual advisor at the school. So maybe he had some influence there and her going there. I don't know. That's only an estimation. She went on then, I believe, then to um, to go to abroad to a finishing school in Belgium. And I suppose at the time that wasn't that unsuitable or unknown because um, finishing schools were great prep for young women to complete their education and enter into society and also to enable them to find a suitable husband. So um, she was well educated. And from what Barbara M. Freeman um, wrote, as an adult, she was credited, she credited her father for inspiring in her an enduring love of nature and of books and of her mother, who was blind, for teaching her to love music and play several instruments. The strongest influence in her intellectual life, however, was her uncle, Thomas Nicholas Burke, a Dominican priest and a renowned liberal and orator. He taught her religious and social tolerance, uh, which was was great at the time, you know. Uh, but that's a little bit about her uh, in that. And I suppose the great thing about this when I was doing the research, I couldn't really find much on her, but I did find bits of pieces on her father. Now, he owned land, and I suppose as I researched the newspapers, I was able to track him, we'll say, um, throughout the next few years. He lived in Montbellu. He had quite an established mill. He owned a lot of land. Um, and I noticed throughout the years that he was very involved in the land league. And at times, I, I believe he was uh, he was arrested at one stage uh, under some kind of uh, crime act. Now, he didn't state what the crime act was, but I obviously it was something to do with the land league and that. But um, so obviously, you know, he was very benevolent to his um, tenants as well, from what I understand, you know. And he improved the land all around the Montbellu area that he had owned. Um, now he went on and he sold his um, land in the 1890 period and he died not long after. Um, now what's interesting is from the, um, Catherine's point of view that she went on to marry at the age of 20. And from what I gather, it's more than likely was an arranged marriage, which at the time, that's how it happened, I guess, you know, it, it wasn't that too unfamiliar as it was at the time, but um, she married to Thomas Willis from County Mayo. Uh, a place called Hollymount. Uh, I think he's probably a little bit older. Yeah, I know where that is. Outside Bally, outside Bally Harness. Oh, very good. No, I don't, I'm not familiar with that now. But uh, she goes on to marry him, and that was in 1876, I think it was. And they have a daughter in 1879. Um, her name was Mary Margaret, which I think she got named May May. Um, now the, the the unusual thing about it, um, they were married for about eight years, and I tried to find some information. I could only find one piece on the newspaper saying that the birth of their daughter in that period, but I couldn't find any death certificates for the husband or the daughter because the stories goes it says that the husband died and that their firstborn or whatever daughter died, 
but I trolled all the archives and got in touch with various, you know, people in 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 um, the Mayo area, and I couldn't find any death certificates, which I thought was very unusual. But then I noticed that, um, and Tara will say, will say the same that in 1901. Suddenly, uh, me me turns up in a census in 1901 in Galway. I think it was Dominic Street. Um, so it was unusual for the stories to say that she had died in that. But obviously, there's Tara may fill you in a little bit more on that as she as she progresses over to America. Um, so I think she reinvents herself. Um, Kit does. Uh, as she goes along. But anyway, she has the daughter and um I think then in, in 1884 she takes a trip over to um to England, I think first Tara. I'm not quite sure and then makes her way over then to to um Canada. But Tara will fill you in on that. But just a little bit about the family um before Tara takes over and talks about herself in, in, in Canada. Um I just went on and had a look at um the Willis family and they were quite established family and they owned a lot of land in, in, um, in Mayo, in Hollymount. And I believe, um, Thomas's father was William, William, and he died, I think it was 1873 or 74, and he left a large estate. And I think there was five or six in family, and I think there was, um, a brother William and a brother John or Richard, and then there was two or three sisters. Now, um, as it happens, one of the sons dies in 1874. So he obviously loses out. Uh, his wife um, had a child and she lost the, the baby about a year later. Thomas apparently dies in 1884. But as I say, I have no proof of that. So I'm not sure what happens to all of that money. But Kit doesn't get it. <laughs> From what I understand, there was a stipulation in, in William's will. And um, basically, she had to produce an heir, a son and heir. But uh, as we know, she had just one daughter. So I believe the money then from that estate went on to the sisters. Uh, I think there was a Bridget and there was a Elizabeth. And uh, I'm trying to think the other names now. But um, I think it's Elizabeth that gets quite a bit of money in that. And that goes on. She marries twice. And I think some of the money went back to um, Margaret May. Because then in the will in, um, I think it's 1904 when she dies, I think don't quote me now, but I think it's 1904, Elizabeth dies and she leaves a, quite a substantial amount of money to various nieces and, and, and that. But she must have been very close to, to Margaret Mary because she was there at the time of death and she lived not far away from where they were in Galway, um, which is um, interesting. But I suppose that's, that's basically it now uh, in relation to her, her background. But uh, Margaret Mary Margaret goes on then to marry uh, in 1907 and she leaves, uh, she marries an Arthur Wallace and they're married for a few years, but he dies, I think, a few years later, but they come on to have no children. And I think uh, Mary Margaret um, dies in about 1863, I think it is, uh, in Galway. And I don't believe she had any children or um, any heirs. Um, but I do know that in 1901, uh, in the census for Galway, there was um, Margaret and her, which would be Catherine's sister, and John, her brother-in-law, John MacDonnell. And then there was a Patrick, which would be a son of um, Margaret. And then there was Bedelia Burke, which would be a sister to Thomas Burke, or no, sister to the um, famous priest. And there was um, some servants. Now, I understand that Walter Burke 
had a bakery in Galway and it was quite established. And it seems, as I read through um, various articles, that um, Walter had a, the bakery and then it went down to his um, daughter, which would have been uh, Bedelia. And I also noticed that um, their Walter's nephew was also a baker, a Francis one. I found him in, in, in the census in, I think, it was 1901. So obviously that passed down through the generations. Um, I understand that Walter's wife, Mary, was a McDonough. And I think she originated from the Mike Cullen area. And, um, but I need to follow that up a bit more. Um, so it's interesting just to see, um, you know, how all of it fell into place, I suppose. And, and, um, she moves on. Obviously, she doesn't have much money, I think, going to England. And obviously, she must have left her daughter with her extended family to be reared there. Um, uh, she goes to England and I think she's a governess. Uh, for a period of time, and then she moves across the waters to Canada. And I suppose well, Tara, you know yeah, more. Well, before I come to before I come to Tara, um, yeah. so we're, to put it in context at the time, she was born a few years really after the famine. So yeah. Ireland would have been coming out of, as we know now at the moment, starting to come out of COVID, and there's a great sigh of relief. And there's this expectation that on the garden is going to be rosary, but it doesn't happen overnight. So Ireland would have been at that time rebuilding. And then the west of Ireland, particularly, and when you go into Mayo, given the, the state of land in Mayo and all the rest of it, it was always very poor. While East Galway, the land is quite good. So coming out of that period that you have a young lady, obviously from a very wealthy family who have successfully managed to weave navigate their way through the famine and she's sent off to a boarding school in Dublin. All I hear on everything I've heard on that is privilege. So Kit Coleman comes from a very privileged background and yet when she gets goes to London she's no longer privileged. She has her circumstances have changed radically. They have, yes, they have. I, it's it's hard to piece together really Austin, but we can only estimate and maybe Tara knows a little bit more but Looking back at her family background, her father, Patrick, he obviously had some money and had some land, but I'm not sure where it originated. But he does have also land up in Dunshotland and County Meath. And I think this is where the family um, circumstances started in the sense of wealth. It must have originated there. They must have had a lot of land because once he sold up the mill in, in Montbello, he goes back to that area again. So it, it must have been his home originally. I'm only guessing this. Mm-hmm. But obviously there was a bit of money there. And so he was able to send her to get well educated, um, as you say, abroad and, and, and in Ireland with the hope of getting a very good husband, um, which was at the time, which was expected, you know, to marry well and do well and integrate. But as, as you say, once that marriage actually, I don't know if he actually dies. There's some rumor that he actually didn't die and that he went to America you know, so she had to reinvent herself. So she was obviously a very clever lady and very resilient. Mm-hmm. And uh, she obviously it needs more research. But as I say, this is the basis that I have started. And I'm sure Tara can fill you in a little bit more. And Tara, over to you. So you're, you're picking up the story from really from when she leaves um, Europe and heads across the Atlantic. Yeah. And before I begin, I think that um, the, the biggest struggle right now is, is there's lots of unanswered questions about Coleman's history in Ireland. Um, I mean, I think Barbara even was trying to guess it if, if her future husband is the one who paid for her to, to go to boarding school internationally. You know, where was that money coming from? Because we're not quite sure um, if the family was so wealthy 
then, you know, why couldn't Coleman stay in Ireland? You know, because even after Willis dies, which again, we don't know what happened there, she chooses to leave. Obviously, she's choosing to leave her daughter and then, you know, immigrate to, to England. So there is a lot of questions as to what's going on there. Um, because if the family was wealthy enough, you would think she would be able to, to stick around. Um, or maybe there were other things going on, social or political or something else that caused her to leave. But yeah, so she, she goes to England and, and, um, some of this record, you know, Barbara's written a lot about it um, and my own research. It's kind of just based on what Coleman tells us, uh, which could be true and it could not be true. Uh, Coleman was a great storyteller. So you're kind of having to take a lot of her own writing with your know, tongue in cheek because she had a great imagination and you don't, you don't always know what is her own history and what is just her storytelling to her audience, you know, because that was a big appeal or her stories that was attracting her audience in. Um, and she had some great stories. So she tells us that she goes to England and that she had um, uh, numerous jobs, possibly worked at a boarding house um, and, and even claims to work in France. Uh, again, there's, there hasn't been any evidence that I've seen of this working in France, uh, just Coleman's own uh, saying, you know, oh, I did this job, I did that job. Um, she talks about working, I think, at a hotel, and she has a Kingsington um, menus that she puts up, the recipes for you know, all these food dishes. Uh, again, I don't know where she's getting this, um, but she kind of acts like it's her own background and history. Uh, but she's, she is in, in England, and then um, I think the story is that she kind of was encouraged to go to Canada, that she'd get paid better and find better work in Canada. So she sails to Quebec on uh, see, June 1884. Um, but on this, uh, on this journey, she actually changes the date of her birth. So she becomes younger. She she was born on uh, February 20th, 1856. She changes it on this journey to the 16th of May, 1864. So she really does literally reinvent herself um, by becoming younger, completely erasing her child. Uh, she tells everybody, including her own children, that this child died at the age of two, um, which is why I, I checked with Barbara a few times. Like, are you are you sure she's dead? I found this May May you know, 1901, why would she tell everybody that her child's dead for her entire life? You know, and she goes back to Ireland when I'm assuming Mamie's still alive. And yet she could never tell anybody back at home in Canada um, that Mamie was alive. Um, and I think her son, uh, and I'm jumping ahead of myself, but because she, she ends up having two more kids in Canada. And I think her son, Edward, travels with her to Ireland. And again, I'm not quite sure because she does a few journeys. Um, so, again, you're thinking if she's back in Ireland, wouldn't she be visiting family? And would it may maybe you know, be around or be mentioned or something? So um, I think Barbara said she went to check her own audio recordings of her interviews because she got to interview Coleman's grandchildren. And, uh, again, they never mentioned that, that May May was alive or that Coleman had lied about her, anything like that. So it seems to be this interesting secret um, or a secret. We don't know if it was discussed uh, that Coleman either never told her family or it was just like the known secret. You know, I'm not quite sure what's, what, what happened there, but it was a really exciting discovery when I realized that May May was alive in 1901. And then when Paula told me all the other information, I was so excited because it, it felt like a missing link of you know, something was going on there. Um Okay, sorry. So she she gets to Quebec and then she makes her way to Toronto in 1884. And um, it's at the same year, she meets and marries an Edward J. Watkins, 
who is an English traveling salesman. And they have two children. So Edward, the boy in 1885, and Patricia in 1888. And again, there's a bit of um, uncertainty. So some point between 1888, after Patricia's born, and maybe around 1890, uh, her husband and Coleman split up. And, and again, we're not quite clear what happened between this, this couple, why they split up. There's a rumor that Watkins was already married. So the, making the, the marriage to Coleman be void. Um, and, and Coleman does briefly tell stories about, you know, being married to a traveling salesman and the difficulty around that. Um, and, and so it's, again, it's not clear as, as if they were having money problems or what kind of caused the splitting up. And I think Watkins dies soon after. I don't think he, he uh, makes it very long. Um, but Coleman then has to take on this burden of, of, you know, she has two kids, she's a single mother and needs to find work. And I, I believe she was doing kind of odd jobs around, uh, Toronto, just trying to earn some money on cleaning and that kind of stuff. Um, but she starts to write and she starts to write for the Saturday night, which is a weekly magazine. Um, and that kind of turns into also writing short stories for the Toronto Daily Mail. So that's kind of how she gets started and she changes her name as she goes along. So, um, we know that her middle name was the, the Blake connection. So she starts using that and she starts calling herself Kathleen Blake Coleman or sorry, uh, Kathleen Blake Watkins for the second husband. And then she shortens it to Kathleen Blake and eventually it becomes Kathleen Blake Coleman. Um, and, and she also, I think, changes it from a Catherine with a C to a Kathleen with a K. Um, so she really does, you know, c- kind of keep changing it, just tweaking things uh, to, to get it to, to where she's at um, with this Kathleen Blake as we know her. Um, and, and that's kind of the beginning of her career in 1889. That's when she starts working for the Toronto Daily Mail. And that paper uh, eventually merges with the Toronto Empire in 1895. And it becomes the Daily Mail and Empire. And Coleman is there throughout the whole transition, has to deal with uh, the politics around that as well, because she has to start fighting with the editors and being allowed to travel and all that. So there's a lot of tension um, as she's exploring that the, the journey with the, the two papers combining. Um, but it's here with the Toronto Daily Mail that she takes over the column Women's Kingdom. So it's not the one that she started. It's one that had already been going in the newspaper. And they were, um, you could tell they're experimenting. They weren't quite sure, you know, trying to get this column quite right because um, it changes, it kind of changes name, it changes subjects. Um, but it always kind of was a column for women. Um, but also uh, men and women would write into it. So there's a few popular debates before Coleman shows up about like uh, if people should be wearing corsets or that kind of stuff. And it creates some good discussions. Um, then Coleman kind of takes over and really kind of makes it her own. You know, she she adds her own stories, as I said earlier. Um, she loved writing fiction and short stories. And you can really tell in her journalism, she's constantly creating these little, I would call them like the flash fiction that we call today, you know, these really short stories. She just adds them in throughout the entire column, throughout the entire career. You know, even when she started working in her later career, she's always adding in these little short fictional stories that could be true or could be her imagination. You know, it's, it's hard to tell sometimes. Um, but her first signed column is on the 26th of October in 1889. And and I feel like that's kind of just this, you know, that's where the history began, if you will, um, because that goes on to cover so many different topics and transnational topics, uh, topics that were challenging social norms in the late 19th, 
early 20th centuries. Um, and she got to travel as well, which was really exciting for her. So she, she really tried to, uh, push, you know, the limits of, of woman journalist and, and kind of take on whatever they would give her. So she could be a traveling writer or journalist or looking at fashion, but she really preferred more of like the politics and the, and the, uh, the fiction, the literature, discussing those kind of things rather than fashion and food and, you know, the, the more popular topics. So, Tara, one of the things I find fascinating here, and this is as an immigrant from Ireland coming into Canada, and I came in 1988, when travel was easy um, and um, life was generally a lot easier than it was in the in the 1880s and 1890s. So what's fascinating here is you have somebody arriving in, um, and it would be fair to say unskilled. Uh, and being an unskilled arriving down into Toronto, uh, which was at that stage probably a population of less than 100,000, uh, but very much a what we refer to over here as a WASP city, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, and uh, male-dominated, and the media would have been male-dominated. So to break into that type of establishment. And we also know that uh, whether it be a liberal media or a conservative media, the management of media would tend to be rather conservative. So for her to successfully break into that was some achievement to start with. Yes, and I think um, what I've kind of found in my background research of the newspapers is that her Irish identity, I think, really helped her because a lot of the editors, like the Toronto Daily Mail, they were also Irish. Um, and so, uh, you know, in my in my thesis, I kind of have a footnote on all those other connections that, that kind of I, I kind of hint at. In fact, there was um, let's see, Irish journalist Edward Ferrer was the editor for the Toronto Daily Mail from 1884. Uh, to 1890, um, uh, and he was a journalist and editor for several Canadian newspapers, including the Daily Telegraph, Winnipeg Daily Times, and the Globe. And then we have Christopher Bunting, was the general manager when the paper merged, um, but died a year later. And Bunting was an Irish-Canadian journalist, printer, businessman, and politician who was born in County Limerick and then moved to Canada with his mother and his sister. So um, we just have these Irishmen who are there. And I, and I wonder if that kind of helped that somehow Coleman got this connection with one of them or two of them. And that kind of helped keep her along with this Irish, you know, because, because I often find with other women I've researched as well, they seem to be connected to other Irish editors or, you know, even in London or in Canada. And I think that that may have helped her. And of course, at that time, because it was after the uh, huge influx of Irish into Toronto around the time of the famine, where, Literally, the population of Toronto was doubled in 1848, 1849 by Irish arriving. So I guess the next generation of Irish at that stage would have uh, established themselves into positions of influence and have a network. So that obviously would have probably helped. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think the Irish really did tend to try to you know, stick together and help each other out. We have a lot of reports of that. Um, and so this, again, could have been that 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 allowed her to get in there um, mm-hmm. and start writing because um, I think she she kind of had to learn a lot of skills you know she must have gained some in England when she if she was cleaning houses or working at the boarding school and that probably helped her when she first came over um, but 
but I'm assuming the writing part was always part of something she must have been interested in to, to pick that up um, and then do so well as a, as a journalist. Uh, I think there must have been a talent there that she was able to really uh, work, you know, to, to make herself so successful. Now, you mentioned that the journalism gave her the opportunity to travel. And as I mentioned, of course, travel is an awful lot easier now than it was then. And Canada is a huge country. And within Canada itself, she managed to do quite a bit of traveling. But then she also did a lot of traveling outside of Canada in a journalistic fashion. And you mentioned that she would have gone back to Ireland a number of times. And the tra- uh, journey back to Ireland, probably three, four weeks on the water alone. So you're looking at a big slice of a year being taken if you're going to do a transatlantic back then. So, yeah. again, all that takes time and money. So in the reinvention of herself, she obviously then was able to lay the necessary foundations that gave her that type of uh, professional opportunity and then personal opportunity and i think she was able to kind of stretch things so i think the the reason the main reason she went back over at least the first time was for the queen's diamond diamond jubilee and and so she might have convinced her editors well since i'm going over for that let me go up to to ireland because i also think she did she go to france she might have gone to another country as well i just can't remember um and so she kind of wrote about her tour you know so she kind of exploited this if i'm already going to go over um and then she ended up writing or she she took the, all of her her articles about the Queen Diamond Jubilee and published a book from it. Uh, so she really was trying to kind of just keep exploiting this one trip, um, and uh, so that was one of her big journeys. And I mean, she went over to the west western United States and traveled around there. Um, I think she tried to do a book out of that, but that didn't that didn't really work out. So. Um, she really tried to make the most out of any of her tours that she got to go on. Um, and then unfortunately, at some point, her editor, once it, once it, uh, once it combined newspapers, uh, the new editor wasn't as keen on letting her travel, um, with the expenses and her being a woman. So that kind of halted, which she was really upset by. Um, but she, she talked a lot about her travels and, and, uh, she got to go to Chicago World Fair. Um, she took the train down with a group of other Canadian women, um, uh, and they were the ones who kind of put together the Women's Press Club in Canada. So there's a lot of interesting connections she's made uh, with with a lot of Canadian women, but also on her journeys around the U.S., Canada, Europe. <laughs> you know, she, she kind of got out there. Oh, she, from a political perspective, and for, she uh, ended up being uh, what was described as a war correspondent. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Go ahead and tell the first would have been the first female war correspondent, as I understand it. Yeah. And this is kind of exciting part of her history um, is that she was accredited by the the United States Army uh, and and her paper actually aided that. So this is when the the Daily Mail and Empire was her paper. Um, And even though they kind of were restricting her movement, uh, she was able to convince them to let her go cover the war. And I really think it was more done as a publicity stunt. And that's why the paper kind of agreed to it. Uh, But they they kind of encouraged um, the the army to to give her this accreditation. And then they could use it as like the headline, you know, that the Coleman is the first woman 
correspondent. Uh, but she she's she gains accreditation. Uh, I think I have it in May of 1898. And uh, by the 19th of May, 1898, the Daily Mail Empire runs an article titled Kit at Tampa. So, again, they're really trying to use this um, as as trying to you know, get more readers in and, and the uniqueness of Coleman as a woman covering the war. Um, but what they do, they make sure to tell their readers that while they're going to be printing her letters, uh, it says that it may therefore be expected that her, Coleman's letters, descriptive of scenes in the van of the impending campaign will soon, soon commence and will be forwarded for publication with as much regularity as circumstances permit. So what I'm reading is that, um, you know, they're excited to publish these, but only if, if it can be allowed, as in if the more important news will get, will get you know, front page coverage. And if there's room, then they're going to, to, to print Coleman's articles uh, so that she's still not, you know, top news, uh, which was a, a thing that many women struggled with, that they wouldn't be printed on the front pages of the newspaper. They were often inside the middle, safely inside the middle of the newspaper. Um, and so anything that Coleman was able to have published on the front page, that would have been really, really rare for a woman to have that. Um, so it's it's kind of an interesting connection where it's like, yes, sometimes she is published, but they do make sure to say that it's because there isn't a lot of other bigger news to kind of take her space so she can get that that space on the front few pages. Um, but that's why, you know, it's, it's because there, were, there wasn't anything bigger to, to fill it. Um, but she does start reporting and, and she she kind of takes a break from the women's kingdom and she says that she's going to just cover the war. Although a lot of her articles are still published in that space of the women's kingdom, which I also think is interesting because, again, that was the women's space. And yet they're publishing war reports in this space. So again, Coleman is really crossing these boundaries of putting non-traditional topics in spaces that were for women and not really traditionally seen. So she's talking about the sadness of men dying and, and that the, the Americans are quite sad, but when they hear that some men have died in the women's column, um, you know, which, which you might think of, well, that's not an appropriate topic, but that's where her, they're putting her, her news articles at some points. Um, other times they put them at closer to the beginning. Um, so again, I just find it such an interesting way that she's crossing these boundaries and, and her information that she's covering. Um, she makes it down to Tampa, but she really struggles to actually make it to Cuba. So that's, that's the other difficult thing that she found is that, um, she was able to easily enough get down to, to, to Tampa. Um, but they would not let her onto the boats to get to Cuba. Um, and she writes about this frustration. I think she gets arrested at one point um, because she was trying to send, um, uh, what's the word, like like news back to her, her, her newspaper. And either they caught her doing it, because um, uh, I can't remember how she was, she was trying to be sneaky and I can't remember how she was trying to kind of get information back. Um, but she, I think she said she was arrested at one point when she got out of jail, everybody had left and they kind of left her, you know, um, in, in Tampa. Um, so by the time she finally makes it over to Cuba, it's at the end of July and the war is actually over. Um, so she kind of misses all the fighting, but she still writes about the aftermath. 
Um, and and uh, I actually haven't gotten to look at her own writing. Unfortunately, it's not on, online. So all of my research has been on like Google News Archive. Um, so Barbara Freeman was able to look at her actual news newspapers, um, and she writes a lot more about Coleman's war reporting. But what I can say is that it's really focused on the treatment of the soldiers and the aftermath of war in Cuba, which I think is, again, a unique side that Coleman took that maybe the other reporters weren't taking. Um, when she gets on her way back to Tampa, um, she's on this ship that gets uh, like left because they're, everybody's sick inside. So she has to remain on this ship and they won't let them off the ship when they get to Tampa. So she ends up having to kind of be a nurse. Um, and I think it was a really traumatic experience for her. So she writes kind of negatively about the U.S. military, which we all know is not not an appropriate thing to do. Um, and, and so, you know, I think she kind of hits some of these boundaries that she's not supposed to be talking about. Um, but it was her own experience that she had coming back into Tampa and dealing with, with what happened to this, the treatment of the U.S. soldiers. And she kind of critiques that. Um, and so even years later, she, she does bring up this experience. Um, she, she starts writing a column in the, not the Canadian monthly, the Canadian magazine, sorry, um, that is called, let me find it again. Um, the peddler pack. And there's a few stories and a few conversations and, and we're talking, what are the years of this? Like 1898, um, she she keeps bringing up these experiences from Tampa and and how hard war can be on people. So I think it really affected her this experience because she continues to bring it up for the rest of her career. Uh, but it's an interesting part of her journey. So when she oh yes yeah yeah so then I, as I understand it was on this trip or uh, returning from this trip that she was invited to address uh, the journalists in Washington. I think so, because she, that's when she marries Coleman, uh, Dr. Coleman, uh, she, she in Washington, D.C. So she might have stopped off to, to do the discussion. Um, and 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 even that marriage to Dr. Coleman, we don't hear about him. And all of a sudden she's married to this man that, you know, so it, it, again, it's this interesting gaps. It's like, who's this guy? Where did he come from? Um, but the, I think they must have had some kind of relationship, obviously, going on that that caused her. Uh, I think Freeman even even speculates that. It was the trauma of the war that kind of pushed her into marrying it for a third time, um, because that's when she she married him in Washington D.C. Uh, yeah. But then I noticed also that um, she had, I was supposed to describe them as uh, editorial disputes or disputes with the the newspaper uh, when she asked for a bit more money, and they said no, uh, so she decided to quit and syndicate herself. Uh, which, again, given the period of time and all the rest of it that was there, uh, highly inventive, highly creative and highly unusual. And as I understand it, she was making more money as a result than she'd ever been making when she was on payroll. Yeah. Yeah. So, again, it kind of allows her freedom, though, because I think she she moves then uh, with with Coleman. Um, oh, I cannot remember the town, but it was a mining town. And the two of them um, move move out there, and, and she she ends up having lots of dogs out there. And I just can't remember the name of the little town they move out to. But she starts writing uh, a lot of her columns from there. I don't think she was very happy <laughs> uh, in this small town. Um, and uh, and they end up coming back. Hang on, I'm trying to look at my records. Um, see, where do they end up? Because otherwise she ends up dying. So oh, oh sorry. So she goes to um, Copper Cliff, Ontario. Uh, and then they, they eventually settle in Hamilton. 
Uh, and then in 1911, that's when she breaks off from from uh, the paper and begins freelancing. Um, and she becomes, as you said, really, really, really busy and popular, freelancing a lot of her work. Uh, and in 1915, so she was only freelancing for about four years. Uh, she gets pneumonia in 1915 and dies on the 16th of, of May, and she's buried, buried at the Hamilton Cemetery. So, Tara, I understand, according to one set of records, she died at 59, but given that she had changed her date of birth, <laughs> that was not her true age, or was that her true age? Uh, yeah, I, I'm not great at math, but you have to, so if she was 1915, and she was actually born in 1856. Uh, I think you'll have to do the math there because I can't do it off the top of my head. <laughs> that would um, that might have been yeah, might have been quite accurate unless there's a ten years in it. But yeah, so uh, it's because I read here she died unexpectedly at the age of 59, and what she thought was a cold turned out to be a deadly case of pneumonia. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, um, was it Freeman or somebody had written about that? Um, Coleman, her husband, was quite upset that he wasn't able to kind of save uh, Kathleen and that um, he took it quite hard when she died because he kind of felt responsible. Um, yeah. And because uh, he, I think he goes on to live a good few more years and serve in the army or something, you know, so he, he stayed quite active after that. But um, yeah. So to the best of your knowledge, uh, Paula or Tara, is there any other female who has had such an influence in a journalistic sphere uh, in and around, let's say, even right up to the 1950s, because um, I've, because the story that you're relating is um, nearly unbelievable. <laughs> that, um, you know, somebody who starts out the way she did and arrives over here in Canada um, and that she would have had to cope with, not to the same extent in Toronto as we do here in Ottawa with the winters, which, although she did move north, I think she was up in Grand Prairie at one stage, I think, where the winters, and they slow things down and they limit and they're harsh in every way. And that it was a relatively short life. Um, yeah. that, I, th- that I think I, I read one place, uh, Austin, I think when she was married to um, Edward Blake, that she had to sell her fur coats one winter because, you know, they needed, they needed uh, money for various, you know, living expenses. You know, I, I'm not sure how truthful that is, but I, I know I read it in a few articles anyway. But right. I thought it was very interesting, considering it's quite cold over there. Yeah. <laughs> in the <winters>. Indeed. So, <laughs> yeah. uh, so, ladies, then I have to ask, what is the... Um, What's, what are we going to see out of your studies? Tara, you're working on, on a paper. or what, what are we going to see out of this? Yeah, I'm hoping. I mean, I have uh, my thesis that's finished now, um, at, or I've, I have a whole chapter on Coleman, but I'm also comparing her to some of the other Irish uh, women journalists who who either stayed in, in Ireland or went to London. Um, and I think just trying to um, – a lot of work has been done on her as a Canadian woman, but recognizing that she was – Irish, and she always identified as Irish, either Irish or Irish Canadian. But that Irish part of her identity was very important to her, and something that we see throughout her entire career that she mentions. Um, yet, I, I feel like it gets forgotten quite a bit in some of the research that was done on her, um, and the influence that, that would have had on her opinions and and her writing. Um, I mean, I've I've found connections of she's some of her writing is very similar to George Edgerton, which is another Irish woman writer. Um, and so it shows that I think she was reading. We know she was reading George Edgerton. She talks about George Edgerton in her column. Um, so she's reading 
Irish woman's writing. She's reading English woman's writing um, and then I think emulating it in her own short fiction that she's creating. And so there are these transnational connections that were not really a scene in her journalism, but also in her fiction. And I think that's where I'm really trying to draw more attention to is, is that there's a lot more, I think, here than we've been able to talk about and making that transnational connection. Yeah. I suppose from a local level, um, Austin, my interest is because she was so local and I hadn't, you know, heard of her before. But hopefully going forward, like just the little story that I've written on her, um, Tara's written extensively, but um, we hope to put up some storyboards in the local area just to raise awareness, you know, just not just about her, but just within the vicinity itself. And maybe some, um, like I had done some studies also on the ribbon men in the area. And so hopefully we'll dot that over the village. And so like, obviously when, when people are, are coming to visit, at least it'll give some knowledge about an acknowledgement, you know, that she lived in this area and she contributed quite a bit in her journalistic life. And she deserves to be remembered in her locality where she was born. So that is the plan I hope going forward anyway. And we can get that done maybe in the next few months. Fingers crossed. Well, Tara and Paula, it's been a real pleasure meeting you and hearing all about Kit Coleman and the Galway connection and then the Canadian connection. And uh, I look forward to when, um, Tara, you have your work complete and that it's out there. And uh, that's, uh, as I say, I know that there is work afoot on this side of the Atlantic also to acknowledge and uh, recognize the Irish and the contribution of the Irish to Canadian society and uh, Kit is on the radars for that also so I was thank you both very much indeed for your time thank you Austin thank you Austin